Hi, everyone. For today's conversation, I had the pleasure of connecting with Thomas Klepfer. He's an American regenerative farmer who's doing work with his wife, who manage and run Pitchfork Farms. They live and operate on an island named Mukaishima in Onomichi, Hiroshima, Japan. This was a great conversation, and we talked about what brought him to Japan, what brought him to farming, what his connection is today to the farm, to animal husbandry, the workshops that he runs, learning from elders, challenges, and opportunities in building community, agriculture, and connecting to the land, to the people, and to the moment. It's a great story for someone staking their own path, and thanks for listening. How do you introduce yourself usually to people who don't know what you're doing in Japan? Yeah, uh, so my name is Thomas Michael Klepfer. I'm from Athens, Georgia originally, um, but I moved to Japan in 2011 uh, in the summer, and I originally came here as a teacher, but I studied sustainable development in undergrad at Appalachian State University, and I wanted to kind of continue what I was learning and practicing there. And so I started a small garden plot as a teacher here in Japan and have slowly uh, turned it into uh, what's now Pitchfork Farms. So we've slowly turned the uh, small plot into our farm, and that's what we do um, uh, pretty much on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. What brought you, you said you were a teacher, were you with the JET program or? Yeah, just... exactly. Yeah, that, that was it. It was the JET program. You know, in 2011, Japan had the major um, earthquake and Fukushima meltdown. And a lot of people quit the program around that time. And so, um, you know, because there was now new space available, I went from being on the B list to the A list and was able to come here and, uh, yeah, found myself in Hiroshima in Onomichi, uh, which is a small port town, um, very close to Hiroshima City, um, but in the western part of Japan. And then what made you, what was your interest in, you know, regenerative farming or just sustainable farming in the beginning? What drew you to that? Do you come from a farming background or just where did that start from? Yeah, I grew up in Athens, Georgia. So it was a town, a college town in the south. Um, I was interested in food to a certain degree, but uh, I mean, restaurants and working in this kind of place, um, you know, kind of like led me to think more about, you know, food and where my food comes from. And then joining a sustainable development program, uh, that was one of the bigger parts of the program is that we needed, you know, we needed to choose a major and I chose sustainable agriculture or agroecology. And we happened to read Fukuoka Masanobu-san's book, uh, The One Straw Revolution, or in Japanese, Wara Ippon no Kakume. And that was like a really pivotal pivotal, pivotal part in learning about um, how to grow, you know, food potentially with no, you know, no herbicides, no pesticides. And then even going to the point of no-till, which is what he talked about some in his book. You know, that's one of my um, favorite books. I actually always have about 10 copies on hand. And whenever I meet new people, I give them a copy of that book. Um, I just find it, I'm not a very good gardener or farmer, but it just has a beautiful life philosophy and Buddhist and kind of anti-corporate and anti-just homogeneity. And it, it's just such a wonderful book to 
as you right. know. Right. Uh, uh, it's funny though because sometimes I give it to people who are really into farming and they immediately have quite visceral reactions. And I'm like, yeah. well, you know, just just check it out. You know, he used to be a pretty traditional farmer, and you know, he he knows what he's talking about. And you know, you don't have to take everything he's doing. And um, so I have a small community plot, and you know, it's out of control weeds, but um, mm. no, it's fun. It's it's just really nice to sometimes let things go, and then I feel like right. our my community plot has done a lot better. Just the less I till, the less I do. And sometimes mm. it does better, but then last season it seems like I've gone a little bit out of control. But we finally had to weed a little bit, and now it's—I I think it's slowly hitting kind of that middle point he's aiming for. So I, I really um, um, like that book. When you, how did you first discover that book? You read it in college, and when you came to Japan, actually, the question I have is: Did you meet people who knew him, or how? What was the relationship with him and in Japan? Right. So in 2008, I read uh, the book. It was uh, it was a required reading for the Sustainable Ag 101. Uh, so uh, Christoph Denbenegler, a guy from Holland, introduced it to all the students and we read it. And then I guess it was in 2010, I needed to do an internship and I didn't really want to do an internship in the U.S. And so I thought maybe I could intern in Japan. I came here in 2010 and got familiar with the, uh, some community people in Nagano and then often talked about the book. And yeah, people uh, people knew about it. But I was surprised to find that he's maybe more famous outside of Japan. And his work is uh, it's been translated in uh, you know, dozens of languages. And I think his his work is more um, well known outside of Japan. But uh, slowly trying to you know discuss what he was doing yeah with other people around me and um i guess it was around 2016 or 17 we bought the property and i listened to it again on audiobooks and i was like oh yeah what he was doing we're kind of doing a little bit of that like i there was one chapter i think where he talked about the chickens he was raising a, a very small native uh chickens that um called a chabo and ukoke these types and i think it was a chabo and we just they were tiny little chickens so that we couldn't even pin them in and they were free ranging in the farm and you know um and that was he talked about that in the book like letting the chickens come back and then one day he let them free he thought they were gone they, they came back with uh little chicks you know following in tow and i thought wow like we're starting to see that here on on our property and um and just another reminder of what we we're trying to do uh, here so yeah it was really from the the undergrad degree that introduced um the book the first book and then um i was able to visit his farm his grandson now runs the property i visited there uh, last uh, two years ago in the winter so that was another great experience to see see his uh farm and space where he was growing citrus and, and how was that how was that experience are they still growing uh, citrus? They are, they are still growing citrus, but, you know, they, to to meet with modern times, um, they're growing more diverse crops. Uh, we harvested uh, over 30 or 40 containers uh, of lemons that day um, up on a steep slope. I got to see his abandoned uh, house, which they've thought about renovating, but it was interesting to see. And he even mentioned this, that maybe his... Uh, Maybe his 
house would be just taken back over by nature. And that was starting to happen. I think the wild boar had moved in and uh, sorry, the, the election is going on behind me. So it's a car that drives around. So. No, no, that's a very classic image in Japan. Those um, quite annoying, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, almost propagandistic uh, sounds. But um, no, it's every time I go to Japan in the summer, you always hear though in early spring. Um, yep. You said we. Who's the other people in your farm? Uh, it's me and my wife uh, that run the farm. Um, so yeah, we've we came here and uh, we got married in two thousand. 16 sorry 2000 we got married in 2015 and we bought the farm in 2017 and my wife she runs a textile property natural dyeing uh, hand spinning um and she does a lot of other uh work within the community so kind of uh i think of her as like kind of like this yeah the thread that kind of brings people together and, and i think textile wise that's what she's doing as well so uh it's me and her uh, working and managing the property. So how big is your farm and how do you decide what to grow? And just tell me a little bit more about the farm. Yeah. So the farm, when I first started, I was just growing a few, like three or four meters by three or four meters when I first got started because it was an abandoned citrus orchard. So it's on a slight uh, slope and we initially were trying to just cultivate in the flat ground and have slowly worked our way up the hill using uh, livestock like goats and sheep. And in the last several years, we raise uh, sheep, we have a pig, we have chickens, duck, and we grow. This climate allows us to grow, you know, 80 or 90 types of vegetables a year that we put in boxes. And then we have over 200 or 300 trees we've planted in the last three or four years mostly citrus because it was a citrus orchard and i think fukuoka he also talked a lot about citrus in his book and we're really close to where he was located it's just about two or hour drive from our farm so climate wise we we can really produce a lot and we can produce year round which is also a very unique part and feature of uh, this region and um, we have one greenhouse on the property that allows us to propagate and put out uh, crops either year round or get our seeds started a little bit early. Uh, this morning I was transplanting uh, bok choy and I'll be planting uh, shungiku or mums, uh, chrysanthemum green basically. And then I'm going to be transplanting next to that uh, zucchini. So I'm planting all of that today, plus salad, radishes, and daikon, as well as kohlrabi, beans. And coriander is probably what I'll put in the field today. And then, Thomas, how are you selecting your seeds? Do you propagate your own seeds or a mixture or commercial? or It's what's... it's a mixture of everything because um, we, we did a lot of seed saving the last four years. There's an old tool on the farm called a tomi, which is basically a, a winnow, I believe, that you can spin a little fan. And you can separate seeds that way. You can separate the waste or the lighter bits from the actual seed itself. So we're actually able to save a lot of brassica seeds, uh, some grain seeds like like wheat or barley. And we, but we do buy seeds. There's a few uh, seed companies. And when I first moved here, I started using a Tane no Mori, which is a Japanese uh, seed company close to Tokyo that 
imports a lot of organic and biodynamic seeds. Another one is Noguchi seed, which is another one that get, brings in a lot of um, organic or natural uh, farmed seeds. And then we do buy commercial seeds as well that fit into our market garden because it's we're not 100% no-till and natural farm. Um, we do do a lot of no-till on the farm or we do what's broad forking or pitch. I use a pitchfork because a broad fork isn't available uh, here in Japan. So I take a small pitchfork and put that into the soil and move it around a little bit uh, just to aerate the soil a little bit. And then I might come back and put some compost on top and direct seed or transplant into that space. So that's um, how we typically prep beds uh, these days. But yeah, we're a mix. We're mixed production because, um, you know, certain times of the year, if I was to do all, you know, completely natural farming, which is letting plants go to flower letting them then go to seed and then letting them drop. I have sections and pockets of the farm that are much like that. But then there's other parts where, you know, I have guests and people coming over that uh, for tours that, you know, I like to have the place looking, you know, cleaned up a bit. And I do think weed pressure is pretty intense in Japan because of the high humidity and heat and the the variety of weeds that grow. So um, we do uh, do some cultivation then and think about, um, you know, how we can, you know, manage the the grasses better. And the, one of the main reasons I do end up cutting and uh, using a, a scythe to come through and cut a lot of the grass back is because we have sheep, and that's uh, their main source of food uh, when they're not when their pasture um, doesn't have as much grass in it. So that, that's another part of the farm, I think. That and then is- Thomas, could you tell me about uh, Mukaishima, the yeah. location? Yeah. So Mukaishima is. Um, it's just an hour and a half. Well, we're eight or nine hours, uh, by car or a four hour Shinkansen ride from Tokyo. We're about an hour and a half, uh, car ride to Hiroshima city. We're located in Onomichi city, which is a small port town, um, that's seen a lot of traffic recently due to, uh, becoming a Japanese heritage site. There's a very famous cycling route now on this area that covers uh, seven islands, and we're the first or the last island on that cycling route. It's about a 70-kilometer cycling route that uh, has brought in a lot of tourists, both Japanese and foreign tourists. And it's mostly known for uh, growing citrus. Um, I guess it's a fishing uh, village is where I live. So not a lot of farming actually is taking place anymore in our village um and the village has about 100 uh, to 120 households and it's um, some of it's mixed you know retirees uh, as many people might know japan's you know seeing big depopulation uh issue and uh so it's a pretty quiet place to be um we're east and south facing so we get sunrise we get a lot of sun and that's why we're kind of known as a, a citrus production zone because um, climate is, is really nice for that. How was the community? Are they happy about the farm or how, how are you integrating into this, this small town? So in the, in the smaller town, Onomichi, the gr- greater Onomichi. Yeah. I think we've integrated really nicely. And my wife's been here for uh, 14 years. So she knows a lot of people, even though she's not originally from here. Of course, I'm not originally from here. Um, and at first, you know, doing what we were doing in the village, it was a little bit of a challenge. Um, but nowadays we, we have, um, 
a local preschool that comes by. We do workshops and tours. So in a greater community, I think, yeah, we're we're starting to see uh, some some success. We have a CSA that has about 10 members in it right now. So that's uh, community supported agriculture where uh, 10 locals are actually coming in and buying a box about once a week. And uh, we've we, because we're able to grow year round, you know, we've been able to, um, you know, uh, supply them with a box every single week since last year. And uh, but the local community, yeah, a little bit of a challenge. You know, when I first got here, I didn't want the uh, because of our customers would be coming up the hill and coming to see our farm. I didn't want the neighborhood to use as much Roundup in places where maybe it's not necessary, um, where we could even be cutting that grass and using it as a resource here on the farm. Um, these are kind of things that we had a bit of a problem with and, you know, and, and just the overall maintenance and, uh, maintenance and, and management of the property. Sometimes it, because it's a natural farm, it does get a little bit weedy, which is, you know, motivation then to, you know, to kind of make sure the place is looking you know, looking good. But we do have a lot of community members uh, that come and see the farm, see the animals, see how we're doing. And in the last year, really, we've actually had a lot of new people move into these, some of the abandoned houses that are in the village. So, and there are, they've been our friends or um, they're not necessarily from this part of uh, the island either. So yeah, it's, uh, we're, we're starting to see some, uh, come, some kind of shift, some kind of movement. Um, which is great. Could you tell me a little bit more about that noticeable change in kind of consumer attitude? Do you think that's kind of part of the bigger, I, I think in Japan it's called Lohas. Yeah. 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 I, I think, I think there's certainly uh, somewhat of a change, but Japan, you know, in general, uh, organic agriculture is, is probably still only one or 2%, which is much less than the G seven nations. If you compare it on a, on a chart, um, and I think there's still a big, you know, way to go or a long way to go, uh, to, to move towards, um, a bit more sustainable production. Now the government has even come out and said that by 2050, they want to have 30% organic production, which I'm wondering how that's possible, but you know, it, it, we can also, maybe they'll change the definition of what it is, what it means to be organic and these kind of things, but, um, move the goalposts a little bit. But uh, but I, th I think there's a lot of potential, too, um, for that. And I think uh, we participate in a monthly market, um, a monthly farmer's market that has a lot of that, um, you know, feeling to it. Uh, so I, th I think we're starting to see a little bit of a change. But um, but the reality is, too, is that farmers in Japan, the average age is about 67 um, and those farmers typically wouldn't switch over so quickly. Uh, JA, uh, the Japan Agriculture Cooperative, has a big role in uh, farming as well. And their initial start was the, you know, uh, the manufacturing and selling of chemical fertilizers and pesticides and the importation of chemical fertilizers and pesticides. So a lot of farmers still rely on those and, um, and, you know, have just put that into their practice and it's just become standard, you know, and that's where farmers tend to specialize under the JA model. You know, you, you don't farm like we're doing 80 to 90 crops a year. You might grow two or three crops and you have, you know, a recipe of how to grow that 
you know, under their standard and it needs to be a certain shape and size in order to sell it. So you end up with maybe more waste because of that. Um, so we kind of have shied away from going that route in our farm. What's um, the relationship? I mean, your farm's quite small, but have they come or gotten any support from JA or from? So they, we do you have to register we, or what's the permitting process? I, I'm just curious. Are hmm. the regulations easier in Japan or not? Or I think it's actually pretty, you know, it's pretty unregulated to a certain degree. Although for our farm, in order to purchase the farmland, and I think this is shifting and changing to allow for more people to purchase farmland in the future. But um, we were renting several plots on the island at one point. And because of that, we can show um, the... It's not necessarily JA, but it's a, a government agency that we can show that we have this much under cultivation. We own these amount of tools um, showing our assets, et cetera. And then from there, we were able to purchase the property we live on. But I don't think that's such an easy route for everybody because most people want to start and they want to buy the land or they want to own the land or even start renting the land. And often that can be a challenge. So our farm, since it was under... Uh, utilized and it was more or less abandoned um the neighbor who rented it to us originally uh you know was was pretty open because we were going to cut the grass and cut the weeds and you know maintain the property somewhat so we had a good uh way in and we were like like i mentioned we were renting several other properties we ended up letting those go because we moved to the farm and that seemed to be an easier uh, way forward as well but and then it would be challenging i think thomas what level of japanese do you have i japanese studied time? so i studied japanese in undergrad and then i did that internship in 2010 uh so uh i don't have a certification i probably would be like jlpt3 if i were to take the test uh, i was supposed to take the jlpt test nine years ago or eight years ago uh and then I bailed out on taking the test because my uh, wife, although we weren't together at the time, she was doing sheep shearing on another island, and that sounded way more interesting. I don't know. Well, I'm sure your your daily Japanese is the the JPLT test is very specific sometimes on grammar and whatnot. But I'm sure your survival Japanese is very high if your day to day experiences. And, uh, exactly, and I and when I got here, I, I kind of put myself out there. You know, I think as a jet or as an English teacher, sometimes it's easier to find yourself you know, separated or, you know, kind of in those, in those pockets where you're just, you know, you're going to hang out with them. And then you might speak some Japanese on the, on the weekday or a little bit, no, a little bit, but I had a pretty good basic understanding of the language. But, and when I started the plot, you know, I'd go to my neighbor's house and just listen, you know, um, and just try to understand. And because I wanted to know more about gardening and farming and, my vocabulary was pretty high in terms of like farm language and knowing what fertilizer was, knowing what compost was, knowing what chemical fertilizer was, um, knowing what the vegetable names were, seed names were, et cetera. So uh, that was a big um, push for me to learn and the language um, and really uh, become involved in the community more. Um, but I did have a lot of help in the beginning too. Um, my neighbor, uh, she introduced me to the landlord originally and she spoke fluent english so that was also really helpful because without those kind of partnerships in the beginning it would be uh, we wouldn't be here today i think 
Do you find that the rural people in Japan are more open to kind of alternative lifestyles or Tokyo and the big cities? I think Tokyo and the big cities probably are more open. I mean, when I'm in Tokyo, people just are doing their thing, you know? Um, and maybe when they go back to their apartment, they don't know their neighbor and they don't know what's going on. And in here, and, I, and I've heard that particularly this island can be somewhat closed um, and a bit closed-minded. And because it's it's an island nation initially but then it's an island within this island nation and so maybe they've been a bit more reserved and it's very unlikely for them to have uh, so much interaction with uh, foreign foreign people coming here so that that's definitely been a challenge and we are doing things a bit differently uh, one of the things when we first got here was having animals that that hadn't been done in a generation or two but come to find out i talked to my neighbors and they said oh yeah we used to have sheep we did have chickens. We did have, you know, there were uh, was a group raising pigs, you know, just down the street, you know. So these are things that um, we've had to just work to communicate. Um, and sometimes uh, we've had media TV here, uh, local media, as well as national uh, media that's come out. And when they see me on TV and I can communicate, I think that's often a good way to make the connection, even though. Um, you know, we, I can't say it myself, uh, how I'd like to say it that with being on TV sometimes, uh, has helped in that, in that light to kind of get people to better understand what we're doing. Um, so yeah, that's, are that's you hiring employees or do you have any workers on your farm or local people or are you, you and your wife doing everything? Uh, so every year it really changes. It depends on what, um, what's going on what's you know what's needed and in that higher season we do get and we have gotten um woofers volunteers uh, people doing farm stay uh we've had interns and i've hired uh, kind of friends in in the in the community or in the city that we're looking for some part-time uh work but we don't have anybody running uh and working with us full-time um and my wife, she runs her textile business as well. So she's she stays quite busy with that. And um, some of her staff have come over to help um, in, in you know, times where we're uh, really, really busy. Um, but for the most part, you know, I'd say 70 to 80 percent is done by me and my wife. And then 20 to 30 percent in these kind of peak times, we get volunteers and, and help um, when when necessary. Um, and sometimes we'll put out like a message on social media saying, Hey, if you have some time this weekend, come help us, you know, we need to build a fence. And then in exchange, we'll provide some lunch, vegetables to go and then share and, you know, uh, talk about what, you know, how we're doing the farm and what we're doing here. How are you continuing to develop your own learning about farming and business and kind of sustainable growth? Are you yeah. looking... Uh, you know, I'm looking at uh, YouTube and and videos because, you know, doing regenerative agriculture or no-till farming, it's not really practiced here. But then initially it was talking with my neighbors, seeing what they're growing. I was so impressed by my neighbors who were in their 80s. I went to their plot when I first moved into this village and, you know, they're growing 20 or 30 
types of vegetables and it's all for home consumption and the excess they just give away to neighbors and friends and family and i was really impressed by that because you know they they've been doing it for so long their their place was full of food and um you know i really thought yeah uh so you know so I, I i knew that what they were doing was you know was the was the right thing the right way it seems so you know anytime i'm wondering about when to plant something or when to seed something i'll get a reminder if i go over and have tea with my neighbor um so that's another big help and you know also looking around seeing what other farmers are doing and uh initially you know i thought um i think when i first got started I was growing i tried to grow some tomatoes and I was thinking, oh, my tomatoes are really growing really nicely this year. Like everybody else look kind of thin. Like there's only one, uh, there's only one stem. Like what's going on? Mine, mine are like really full of, full of, uh, foliage. And I realized I hadn't been trimming back at all. I hadn't been taking the suckers off and I got a big green plant with very, very little fruit. So you know, looking around and observing what's going on around is probably one of the best indicators. Um, and then communicating with the neighbors too, now that we're doing citrus, um, asking about how to uh, cut back or trim or um, kind of manicure the plant to where it'll grow and fruit uh, properly in the next few years. So we, you know, those are other uh, big, you know, big help um, for the farm and a great resource. But I think YouTube and books, um, seeing what's going on outside of Japan, uh, seems to be a, a great way to, you know, better understand, um, how to do this kind of farming. But, uh, I don't see a lot of farmers in our climate doing, uh, necessarily what we're doing. So that's maybe that's one of the challenges. There's not a lot of, um, farm videos that i've seen where people are doing citrus for uh, for example uh organically or no-till or um you know re in a regenerative uh farming way so thomas what's your perspective then on the current kind of food system overall in japan how do you think that contrasts with the u.s or hmm. just well i i think the food doesn't have as long of a way to go so um, and the infrastructure is really uh, is 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 really great in Japan. I mean, even even though our farm is producing for local uh, consumption, we do still get orders from outside of uh, outside of uh, the region, and that's that's a huge plus for our farm because you know um, the rural populations are declining, and you know urbanization is continuing to increase every year. So, if we have uh, some market or some opportunities there i think it's great uh in the u.s you know i lived in georgia and you go to the supermarket and a lot of stuff is coming from california i was just in hawaii uh a lot of the food there is coming from california or mexico um uh, coming from outside of you know hawaii so you know there's there's definitely a lot of challenges still um in japan uh I thought, you know, you know, it's 35 percent self at self-sufficiency right now. It used to be around 70 percent. And we have a long way to go in terms of increasing um, food self-sufficiency. But then 
in terms of vegetables, it's about 80 to 85% self-sufficient. So it's actually doing really good in terms of what would be consumed on a regular and daily basis. It's mostly uh, commodity uh, grains and bean crops like soybeans, wheat, barley that's coming from outside. So uh, soba, I guess, buckwheat, these kind of crops are coming from outside. So, you know, it, it's it's really hard to say um, which system is better or worse. I do think there's still a long way to go in terms of food waste in both countries. Um, there's And in Japan, particularly, as I mentioned, if it's not a certain shape or not a certain um, size, uh, uh, weight, um, or if it has any blemishes, a lot of that stuff just gets tilled under or thrown away. And I think that's, you know, we got to find ways to reduce waste. And, uh, and then a lot of it is dependent on seeds coming from outside. And a lot of it is dependent on fertilizers now coming from outside. And we're seeing prices uh, continue to increase um, on those things. So uh, we can, you know, we can, we can always be doing a bit more um, to make it a bit more sustainable. And um, yeah, I think uh, there's opportunities there. You know, I live in Hawaii, Thomas, and um, I speak to sometimes my Japanese friends and, you know, there's so many wild boar in Japan now. Right. And here in Hawaii, we have, you know, wild boar and wild axis deer. And there's a lot of a big hunting community. And I think I saw on your Instagram or somewhere that you were doing some butchering classes or something. Are you doing that? Yeah, we've done. So we so for uh, for chickens, actually, we get um, older, older hens that are no longer laying from our friend's farm. And we'll use them a little bit in a chicken tractor, a mobile chicken tractor that we'll just kind of pull around the farm. And we'll do that for um, some of the weedier, uh, you know, warmer seasons. But then we've actually done uh, workshops for that. And for wild boar, when I first got here, um, I had some wild boar and I thought it was it was OK. Um, and then I came back to this area and um uh, uh, was starting to work at my wife's company. And then one day she said, Oh, like there's a wild boar. I just got a phone call. And she, she actually knew how to butcher. I, I had no experience in that at all before coming to Japan and she knew how to do it. And she showed me how to butcher the boars. And we um, eventually she got the hunting license for trapping boars. So we trap uh, like two to three boars a year. Um, probably if we were a bit more proactive about it, we could be trapping much more. And if we increase the number of traps we have, um, we'd be increasing that, but they're a big problem. I mean, when I first got to the farm, I didn't have a lot of infrastructure. I didn't think I would be staying here full time. So I didn't put a lot of money in fencing. I used what was around me, which was bamboo post, um, some, uh, polycarbonate, uh, roofing as like, or, and, uh, some, tin roofing as like siding thinking that was enough and it was definitely not enough i came uh, back to the farm one afternoon and saw my zucchini had just been obliterated by wild boars so from that moment on i i knew we're gonna have to do a little bit more to keep them down um keep the pressure um and this area you know they weren't here before so most farms didn't have fencing and infrastructure put in place but they've actually come off the main island or they've come from shikoku by swimming um and now with these that cycling route it covers seven bridges across the island they now walk across the bridges in the evenings and night um 
to get over to the island. So they're they're using some of our infrastructure to to get around too, which is interesting. Um, but they're they can be a big problem. Um, they're not as I don't know if they're as big as the boars maybe that were uh, introduced to Hawaii. They're like an Asiatic boar that's really uh, it's a little bit smaller um, than what we see sometimes even like Texas and cause some of those hogs are hogs that escaped from a, a big yard and then bred with other wild boars and just became these you know kind of monsters. But they're um, the ones we get are still pretty small. But it's we find that it's also really hard to trap the bigger boars um, because they they don't go in the cage traps. So there's foot traps that you can set. And we've set them before, but we've never really had a lot of success catching them. And uh, a little worrisome about what to do after you catch one in a foot trap because it's still got three legs free. So we well, have to do still... the Hawaiian technique. You four friends hold the pig and you uh, knife the throat. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's what they do in Hawaii. But wow. in Hawaii, usually for trapping uh, hogs or wild boar, you use dogs. The yeah. dogs would then trap him and then use a spear or knife to yep. finish. Wow. Yeah. We, we, we kept, we capture them with um, a cage trap, box trap, uh, with a guillotine type door that shuts in, shuts them in, and then we, because our area and because we, me and my wife, we don't have um, a gun license, we don't have that uh, degree of uh, hunting license here, so we um, use yeah spear uh, to put you know to finish the the boar, um, and you know it's it's a bit part of the process i think you know being on the farm and being in this you know being in nature where we're at um they often come in they consume our sweet potatoes our pumpkins uh, potatoes um and also come in and till up the soil and then you know we if we do trap them it's you know it's kind of this circle that no, it's a circle of life. I think it's normal. It's yeah. I mean, it's just funny because my friends in Japan they just thought we were wild because you know you can go hunting right here in Honolulu, right? <laughs> and you can get the permit in you know one or two days, and you can use a gun, a, you know, an archery, a knife, <laughs> you know, on the trails. Just five minutes from Waikiki, you can go hunting. So it's just interesting because in Japan you have the same thing, but they make it quite. I know in Hokkaido, they must have so many wild animals and I, I don't know how they keep those populations in check, but I guess there's there they hunt with guns and rifles and long guns. And similarly to the farming issue, the age of hunters is just increasing year on year. And there's not a lot of young people who can or would um, hunt. So it just makes it another challenge. Um, and fortunately, you know, in our region, we only have wild boar. But I've got friends who farm in other parts of Japan, and they've got deer, wild boar, and they have to deal with monkeys. Oh, and the monkey I, is crazy. I don't even know. I just can't. I can't even imagine, you know, dealing with that. My friend was saying that, you know, pretty soon he'll be harvesting onions, and um, almost every year, the some group of monkeys will come in. They will grab one onion, take a bite out of it, realize they don't like it, and throw that one away, and then go harvest the next one, take a bite, throw it away. They just kind of continue this process until they're full of onions, and they go on to the next thing. But yeah. So it's... going back, back, Thomas, to the major issue in Japan, the elderly population increase, and 
how is you said there's people moving to the community and are more mm -hmm. and more young people getting interested in these kind of alternative lifestyles or they or is this still kind of fringe and do you yeah, find people it's definitely fringe it's definitely because it, i think i think you get a lot of people too and government is also working to promote um younger people coming to rural areas there's even subsidies for younger people to get farm to start farms now but they um you know they'll come in they'll start and then they'll realize some of the difficulties or maybe they'll have some issues with the community so in some cases it is um a bit of a challenge i think onomichi and this island makaishima has become pretty um unique in the sense that it's getting a more um uh more people wanting to have a bit of an alternative lifestyle uh you know trying to change um and i guess in japan they call it like i turn or u turn people um but people who've lived in the big city and then have come back these are becoming more and more common and i think uh, they're promoting you know for people to come here um and, and and live in the rural area but i don't think it will happen at the rate or the pace at which the depopulation issue uh, will continue to uh, occur and um you know and that's and and we're not that rural in our island uh whereas if you went more to shikoku uh or if you went into the center part of uh, this region like in shimane prefecture or tortori prefecture those areas have um, a much greater um, elderly population with more of the more challenges than i think what we find here um so uh, our our area i mean it's a 20 minute car ride to the city center and the city has about 120,000 people um but you know this it will continue to go down over the next 20 years or 10 years and but i i can definitely see i mean in the the community and the markets that we attend yeah there's a lot more younger people there's a lot more families that have kind of made up the community that we're a part of so um and people are starting up these new shops and businesses that I think are pretty unique and sometimes they feature some of our produce or they get advice on how to start their own garden. So we're, you know, we're creating community and connection within that. And I think that's, um, you know, going forward, that's going to be really valuable um, compared to maybe what uh, the average or the majority of maybe Japan will do. Um, do you kind uh, of see other foreigners coming to Japan yeah. to kind of pursue your kind of path or yeah I, i'm on i'm on a few website or i'm on a few social media groups like one is called kominka uh and one is about you know renovating and building a house in japan the other one is a japan gardening website that mostly features uh, uh foreigners coming to japan and wanting to do uh similar uh, projects and in one of the videos that uh, is now featured on YouTube called Growing Small, uh, the guy has mostly interviewed uh, foreigners who have come to um, Japan to do some of these um, more permaculture or regenerative ag type uh, projects that seem to be, yeah, seem to be going pretty well. And in our, our uh, island, I think there's a handful of foreigners who've started up cafes or businesses or restaurants and um, and then there's still opportunities to teach 
uh, English and, you know, or uh, work in some other trade. So I, I can definitely see um, an increase. Um, but getting in is, is probably the hardest part. And a lot of people have ideas or thoughts that they want to come to Japan, but you know, getting here, staying here, getting the visas. I'm seeing one couple now a few islands away that they're trying to get a business visa to start a um, homestead. And I just, I, I'm wondering how, how does that even work? Because um, they're not, they're both not uh, from Japan. And, um, you know, and that, that could be a challenge, I think. Um, yeah. Thomas, what's uh, some of the goals you have for this year that you want to share with people? Yeah, the goals uh, this year. So, um, you know, it's kind of maintaining and sustaining what we've already done in the last several years, um, maintaining the same amount of customers. Um, I'm actually going to be working off the farm, uh, just trying to expand just different uh, career opportunities and potentials. So um, I want to kind of sustain and maintain what what's going on. But also in the last year, uh, my uh, father-in-law bought a property that was also abandoned or, um, you know, unused uh, house, which came with another location. Um, and it's an older citrus storage shed. Um, and that property we're hoping to turn to a cafe or farm to table space. And um, that will feature, you know, eighty percent of our produce, and um, we we are going to continue that and just kind of keep keep things moving in that direction. And um, so that's that's the big the big thing. And and you know, every year I think in you know the the height of summer, spring, summer, I, I sometimes get a little bit um, you know uh, over uh, a little bit over pressured or a little bit worn out and i think the thing with this year is just to kind of you know maintain optimism you know and keep going because you know every year you, you with farming or gardening anything you you know you're gonna have some challenges things aren't gonna grow as well as you expected or certain crops but then there's always that one or two crop that just you know really sh like shines really flourishes and i think thinking about that in the in the long term you know, not just in the year to year basis, the annual basis, um, but, you know, we're still building soil every year. We're still improving something every year. So maintaining and then sustaining that should be, you know, really the goals for this year and for our farm. Nice. Well, Thomas, I, I, I really would love to visit your farm one day. And if you come to Hawaii, please, you know, contact me and we'll show you some of the local community here. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Anything else you want to share or anything else? Uh, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you if they have questions or anything? Pitchforkfarms. Dot what was it? Dot com or dot jp? Yeah, pitchfork. Pitchforkfarms. Dot jp and uh, yeah, we're on social media with Pitchfork Farms. Um, yeah, that, those are some of the best ways to get in touch with us. I think we have uh, a space where people can write and send a message or an email um, to our farm. And yeah, if you're in Japan, uh, look us up. If you're coming out for a uh, cycling trip on the island, you can always stop by the farm, um, check it out. And yeah, uh, we'll we'll be we'll be here for this uh, this coming season. Um, so yeah, looking forward to the visits.